Hello guys, and welcome to Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm your host, Alex Ballinger. Before we get started with this week's show, just wanted to say we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we've roped in producer Matt to actually talk on the air during the show. Hello, Matt. Hello. You've bought, I understand you brought your own mic from home just to get in on the conversation. Yeah, I felt left out. So, so I I'm sure hopefully you'll bring something interesting to each of the chats that we have anyway. I, I think you're over-egging it, to be honest. <laughs> so before we get on with this week's show, uh, don't forget, uh, at IBL Podcast on Twitter, you can follow us, talk to us on there, let us know what you think of the show. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast from. We're available on Apple Podcasts and a bunch of other places as well. This week's show is really interesting, really looking forward to it. So first of all, we're going to be hearing from our What's On reporter, Grace Earl. Grace wrote a really important opinion piece last week about her experiences as a female cyclist. So she talks about how she was basically attacked by two guys with an air horn while she was riding through the streets, but also how it's not an isolated incident either for her or for other female cyclists in the city. Then next up on the show, we're going to hear from Tristan Cork. Now, Tristan has been looking into some really, really awful behaviour at a farm in South Gloucestershire and the owners have appeared in court after they were investigated by the RSPCA. So Tristan is looking at that investigation. And then finally on the show, we are talking to reporter Alex Wood. Alex has been tasked with putting together a story that explains why Channel 4 should come to Bristol. Channel 4 is looking for a new base, but also for some cities to set up regional offices. Bristol has been shortlisted, so Alex has been finding out exactly why Channel 4 should come here. Do you think Do you think Channel 4 should come here? I would love to see Channel 4 come here. I feel like there's going to be some turf war between the BBC Natural History Unit and, and Channel 4. Are you a fan, Matt? I mean, I definitely maybe would apply to be a contestant if it was an easier commute. Absolutely. I don't know what game shows they've got. But I don't don't know what what they're doing these days. I mean, we used to have Deal or No Deal in Bristol. That was was peak. That was the pinnacle of Bristol television when we had Deal or No Deal. I know. I mean, forget Attenborough. No one cares about Attenborough. (laughs) Deal or No Deal, mate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going (laughs) to upset a lot of listeners here. Let's retract that. <laughs> he is a national treasure. We he should, is. Yeah. But maybe with Channel 4, we can get some sort of new version of Deal or No Deal that will be... When one door closes, Channel 4 comes to Bristol. Channel 4 comes to Bristol. <laughs> that is the name of the game show. <laughs> when one door closes. Yeah, there you yeah. go. We'll work we'll up a pi- format. We'll, we'll come pitch back. it. We'll pitch it. When, so we need Channel 4 to come here so Matt and I can host our own game show. This would be highly disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's get on with this week's show. Let's speak to Grace Earl about her experiences as a female cyclist. My name's Grace Earl and I'm a reporter at Bristol Live. So Grace, we're here today to talk about a really important opinion piece that you've written. It's quite a personal piece. It was fantastically written. It was absolutely brilliant. And I know you've been getting a lot of positive feedback. Can you tell us a little bit about what the piece is? So I wrote a first person piece about what it's like to be a female cyclist in Bristol. For a bit of context, I cycle to work every day. It's about six miles from my home in Brentree to the office. It's quite a a busy commute and I've experienced sort of a lot of abuse and catcalls and dangerous driving, all sorts of near misses and close passes and things that are pretty frightening, to be perfectly honest. I've been cycling for about a year and I've experienced quite a lot sort of during that time. Um, And there was quite a lot of debate in the weeks leading up to my piece about why so few women in Bristol cycle so I thought it would be an appropriate time for me to sort of chime in and and give my opinion on it as a woman who does cycle in Bristol. I think yeah it was a really important time for you to write this piece I suppose because like you said it was it was relevant because a recent report from Sustrans had come out the campaign group which talked about why fewer women in Bristol cycle than men but then what was missing from that report it seemed was 
experiences which are exactly like the experiences you've had and there was one particular one recently wasn't there that sort of sparked a bit of a, a twitter thread from you where you was it gloucester road you were riding home on? no it was temple way it was um just outside cover circus actually i was um it was late at night and i was riding home with my fiance who was sort of a few paces behind me and i cycled past the bus stop and two men who were in their 40s certainly old enough to know better Decided it would be funny to blast an air horn at full volume into my face from the side of the curb, which naturally scared the life out of me. I didn't fall off my bike, but I came close. Um, and when I naturally shouted back in reply, words which I shan't repeat here, they just laughed and thought it was funny, but they didn't think it was so funny when my fiancé got off his bike and confronted them and said, look, what the hell do you think you're playing at? Do you realise how dangerous that is? What if she'd fallen into a car? What if she'd fallen into a bus? She was cycling in a bus lane. And then their response was, oh, yeah, didn't think about that. So it's just about raising awareness of the kind of stuff that goes on because that's far from the only thing that's happened to me while being out riding my bike. It got to a point where I was thinking, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. But no, I know that I'm a safe and responsible cyclist. I've had official cycle lessons to help me be more confident on the road. I don't take unnecessary risks and I don't ride quickly enough to put myself in danger half the time anyway. So I felt like it would be a good time to try and spread a bit of awareness and make people understand that cyclists aren't all hell-bent on running red lights and cutting people up and they're not just weaving in and out of buses and putting themselves in danger. For most people, actually, the reality is quite different. You mentioned that this isn't this is far from an isolated incident. I mean, you personally have, have been through other experiences similar, I imagine. Are there other people as well, would you say, that are suffering from the same things and yeah, going through the same things? Yeah, for sure. Since I published my piece, I've had a real positive response on Twitter and on my own personal Facebook page. One of the things that's really sort of came to light in the comments that I've had is how so many women that I know and I'm friends with have tried to cycle in Bristol and have faced the same sort of problems one of, one of my friends, she lives in Bedminster and was subjected to a particularly disgusting comment from a man as she was just cycling to university one day. I won't repeat what that comment was because, quite frankly, it's awful. And another friend of mine who lives in Easton and works in Clifton used to cycle to work every day and she got hit by a bus and is now too scared to go go back on the roads and I think that's really sad. What is it that is the problem for women recycling on the roads then? Is it a combination of, sort of hostile roads and sexism? What would you say is like the, the big yeah, problem? Yeah, I think it's a perfect perfect mix of the two, really. The, um, the sexism is probably less frequent, but it hurts more because it's just another way that not all men are like this, obviously, but some men think that women are inferior and can be treated in this way. But the dangerous driving, I totally, totally get why that would put people off cycling. I wouldn't be cycling had I not taken the initiative to have proper cycle lessons and accept that I need a bit of help with this and I need to I need to learn properly. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a driver, but I've never cycled on roads before, so I need a bit of bit of support with this. And I think, unfortunately, both aspects of of the problem aren't really going to change until there's proper investments in proper cycle infrastructure like segregated lanes until there's just a lot more work done more generally outside of the world of cycling for men to start taking women seriously. Is that something that you were trying to get across in this piece then is speaking to women like yourself who cycle and women who don't who are afraid of it but also trying to speak to men and drivers 
who are part of the problem? Were you trying to educate as well as inform? Yeah, absolutely. It was um, it was really important for me to try and encourage other women who maybe have stopped cycling or who want to and and don't feel confident to to show them that like you know it it can be done. But at the same time, I think it's more important, if anything, to try and spread that message and show the realities of my everyday mundane cycle to and from work that that I should be able to enjoy in peace without any interruption that's that's clearly not happening so it's 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 more important to read that piece in a way if you're a driver who's ever shouted at a cyclist what is it that keeps you cycling to work then really uh the fact that it's a lot quicker than the bus (laughs) the bus is so unreliable and takes such a long time I'd spend quite a lot of money on my bike and so I financially couldn't afford to to stop cycling and just leave the bike to rot in the cycle shed. But um, I'm trying to lose a bit of weight and get fitter as well. And for all of those things, it's it's really helpful. Plus, I just really enjoy it. And I never thought I'd say that this time last year when it started and I was sort of hating every minute of it, finding it really, really hard to get up, get up the hills and feeling really nervous. But I like the sense of freedom that comes with it. I like having those 30, 45 minutes every day where... It's just me and the bike and the road and all I have to think about is, you know, the the sort of traffic and all of that. I'm just, it's something where you're just purely in the moment and yeah, it's stressful at times, but it's nice getting home or getting to work and having that sense of accomplishment. For whatever reason that you want to get on a bike, you should be able to to ride it freely and happily and get to work without having had anything happen, shouldn't you as well? You should be able to get there safely without being harassed, without, you know, anyone attacking you, without air horns being blasted in your face. And it's interesting that you said that those people that were confronted, they said, oh, I didn't think about that. Do you think that's part of the problem then is that people just aren't even considering the impact? Yeah, I think cyclists just aren't taken seriously by many sort of groups of society. I think unless you are a sort of serious road cyclist you may you're maybe not aware of the kind of dangers that someone on a bike might face or the kind of things that they might go through I get why those two people might have thought blasting an air horn oh it's just a bit of a laugh it doesn't matter what then what then troubles me is the way they reacted to me confronting them because I shouted at them I really told them off and they just laughed at me what was really telling was when my partner, who is not a big man by any stretch of the imagination, he's and he's not an intimidating sort of character at all, went up and, and confronted them. And then that's when they finally took it seriously. But from me as a female reacting, they didn't want to know. When writing this piece, it's obviously quite a personal piece. It's about your experiences on the roads. Was there any hesitation in putting yourself in the forefront of this story in that way? Yeah, definitely. I'm quite an insecure person a lot of the time, so... Writing something so personal is always going to be something that tests me, but it's it's something I know I need to get more comfortable with doing anyway. I was prepared for quite a lot of abuse and quite a lot of negative criticism, which there obviously was, but what inspired me and what made me feel really positive about what I'd done is the amount of people, and the majority of them were complete strangers, who got in touch with me through Twitter and said such nice things and gave me such positive feedback. There was one comment, I think, where a lady said, oh, thank you so much for writing this. I really enjoyed this piece. Thank you for giving ladies on bikes a voice. And that's enough. That's what that's what matters for every bit of abuse or negativity that some s- sad, whatever you want to call them, troll 
is writing, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. I can write a story about just about anything and someone's there to slag it off. So it's no different, really. Yeah, so it is. it does seem to have been really important that you put your experiences across personally, I suppose, isn't it? And And someone that is in your position who doesn't have to write about themselves can, you know, write about experiences of other people. I suppose it's quite interesting to see the platform that you've had to be able to to talk about your experiences. Yeah, and I'm I'm sort of really glad I did it from from that kind of angle really. I feel it's a it's an important topic and it's one that our readership's engaged with a lot in general, you know, com- comments about cycling infrastructure and how to make the roads safer. There's always a really healthy debate between drivers and cyclists, but what people often miss is that the majority of cyclists are drivers as well. I certainly am. And it's it's just important to see both sides of the argument and get get it out there, really. So you think this is an issue that's not going away? No, definitely not. Um, if anything, I think it's going to get more pertinent. I think there's... Um, we did a story a couple of weeks ago about, I think it's close to half a million pounds of cycle improvements are going to be made to the old market roundabout. And that's a really that's a really positive step. But I get that there's a lot of drivers out there who don't think it's necessary. Well, take it from someone who cycles and drives... They are necessary and more of them, the better. Grace, thanks very much. Keep cycling. No worries, I will. (laughs) Really recommend you read Grace's opinion piece after that chat there. It's really, really well written, but also it's quite heartbreaking. Some of the things that female cyclists have to go through on our streets. Right, let's go into our next conversation with reporter Tristan Cork, who has been looking into an investigation into animal cruelty on a farm in South Gloucestershire. Tristan, we're here to talk about something pretty awful, to be mm. honest. It's been dubbed the farm from hell. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? So um, there's a farm uh, in a little hamlet called Inkst, which is near Olverston, which is sounds like it's in the middle of the countryside. However, it's not. It's literally a couple of miles from Aztec West between Bristol and Thornbury. So it's really close to the M5 and the M4. It's so close to the M5 that the M5 actually plays a part in the story, weirdly enough. We'll get onto that later. Last week, the lady who owns and runs the farm, Sue Smith, was convicted of 36 different charges to do with animal neglect, cruelty and failing to dispose of the bodies of dead farm animals. Her partner who is called Mark Downs, was convicted of 22 other offences in a similar thing. And her daughter actually pleaded guilty at a previous hearing to two charges relating to the welfare of a dog or to a couple of dogs on the farm as well. So it's a big case. The RSPCA sent out the kind of standard press release they do. It was, wasn't one we saw in court we don't routinely go to magistrates court which is a subject for a different debate but we weren't there in court so we relied on the RSPCA to send a press release with the details the sort of factual details of the the case a list of the charges and a gallery of photographs now so we did that story we told that story and it, it was obviously shocked a lot of people and then, uh, and things have progressed since then. So it was the pictures, the pictures that you mentioned that really were what made this story as shocking as yeah. it has been, basically, because you could have reported the animal cruelty and it 
it would have yeah. been an interesting story, but it really wouldn't have had the impact on people, I think. Yeah, so the pictures showed, and apparently they're, they're not the worst ones, the pictures showed dead animals in, a, in fields, horses and sheep. They showed dead sheep in piled up in a barn with the lambs that were the dead sheep's lambs sort of standing on their bodies or standing next to their bodies still. And they also showed lots of different sort of uh, scenes in the farmyard of like just the way that things were, um, the stuff all over the place. I've seen them too many times now and I can't quite get them out of my head. So there's pigs, dead pigs and pigs in the same field that are eating the carcasses of dead animals. That was um, one of the charges. And there's lots of that, those kind of images which actually pros, pose a problem for us as a publication because people don't want to see people want to see that but then a lot of people don't like seeing that kind of thing and how do you put it onto social media how do you put it into the newspaper or onto the website so there's lots of warnings that went on and it's very difficult to kind of tell the shocking details of that story without shocking people it is such an awful awful story and i think people have reacted in a lot of mixed ways to this, haven't they? Some people have been, yeah. like you said, have been sort of a bit frustrated with us for sharing those pictures, I suppose. But then you can't tell this story really without those, can you? Yeah, I mean, that's the case. You're always going to have people who are upset by that and say that we shouldn't be showing it. And then there's always going to be people who want us to show it to show how shocking and terrible it was. Interestingly, so... What happened after we published that story was that a lot more information came in and we and I decided to investigate this further. What happened was a lot of people read the story who uh, had extra knowledge of this farm and this case. The RSPCA's press release was, and what was said in court, was only literally about a third of the story. That because their press release was talking about what happened in court, it didn't talk about other things that have gone on. So I found out lots more from talking to other people. There has been concerns about this farm and this woman, Sue Smith, for probably 20 years. So I did a bit of digging um, and it was a really good example of a situation where a reporter generally... This applies to all reporters, shouldn't just rely on the press release um, for something that there might be a bigger story to it. So I found out that in 2002, did a bit of research, found out in 2002, uh, Sue Smith was banned from keeping horses for life because somebody, there was a series of reports and complaints about this condition of horses on her farm, but somebody, the, the actual... The case that saw her in court came from uh, an eyewitness who saw eight dead horses in a field and they were just driving past the field on the M5. So it's right next to the M5 and somebody's driving along and they see eight dead horses just lying there. They go back the same way the next day and they're still there. So they're obviously dead. They're not just lying there. So the RSPCA went in there and prosecuted her back in 2002 and she was banned from keeping horses for life. I, spoke, I even got to speak to the original RSPCA inspector who brought that case, who does not work for them anymore. And he talked to me about 
all the complaints that they were having about her. And then I also spoke to many people, um, probably looking at about half a dozen in the space of one day, who contacted me and I contacted them to tell me that they had been, they either live locally around the farm, around the village, or they live in Bristol, the Bristol area. They're the kind of people who would take in a horse if they see a horse that's being neglected or left or abandoned or something. They're the kind of people who, those sort of animal lovers who just devote their lives to go around saving animals, no matter what kind of animals they are. Those sorts of people were all separately checking out what was going on in at this farm. And then they made, through sort of social media, I guess, they kind of connected with each other and formed almost a little group that would regularly go there and regularly uh, walk the footpath through the farm to see what the state of play was. And they would bombard the RSPCA and South Gloss Council and DEFRA, which is responsible ultimately for farm, the welfare of farm animals and all the regulations that go with it, uh, with, with reports and complaints and concerns for years this is sort of what's led to a follow-up story that we did this week. And then there's going to be more to come towards the end of this week when Sue Smith and Mark Downs are sentenced. So why did it take so long for anything to be done then? If people were raising these concerns and members of the public were constantly keeping an eye on what was happening, why was there such a problem with actually getting these people in court? That's the, that's the million-dollar question. And it's one that I intend to put to the authorities. I have put it to them. It's difficult for them at the moment because the legal proceedings are still going on, so they can't be completely open about the situation. Um, I'm hoping that when the RSPCA inspectors talk to me after the sentencing on Thursday, this will be yesterday, um, I'm hoping that yesterday they will have um, talked to me a lot more about that. I guess uh, the, from the picture I've had painted to me from talking to um, lots of different people about this, they've got limited powers. They can only seize animals or a woman, a person can only get banned from keeping animals by the order of a court. And they spent a lot of time trying to gain access to the farm and couldn't. The RSPCA, let's not forget, have no powers. And this was a, a really interesting development. Um, so a bit of background, for the 15 years I was um, a reporter on the Western Daily Press, which is Bristol Post's sister paper, but out in the rural area. So I did a lot of stuff like this, talking about farming and agriculture and animal welfare. In the early 2010s, there was a big, well it was 2014-15, there was a big protest um, and a campaign to stop the RSPCA prosecuting, doing too much prosecuting of people. Um, and that came from a, a powerful pro-hunt, fox hunt lobby, who were really annoyed that the RSPCA was taking on prosecution of fox hunts when the police uh, and the CPS wouldn't. So the RSPCA won a major victory when they prosecuted a hunt in the Cotswolds, which was actually David Cameron's clinical hunt, and they won that case and it cost them a fortune, but they won it. And since then, the the media in London, the Mail and the Telegraph and the Times and lots of conservative MPs who were pro-hunting really went came down on the RSPCA like a ton of bricks and tried to force and successfully forced the 
the RSPCA to conduct an internal review of the kind of things that they prosecute, called the Wooler Review, and that found that the RSPCA sh- were prosecuting when actually the statutory authorities, so the police, the CPS, DEFRA, and most importantly, the the local council, they should be prosecuting things more. And what's been happening is the police, if there's an animal welfare incident or case or somebody complains about some, you know, Mrs. Bloggs has got 28 cats and she's not looking after them. That's a police matter. She's breaking the law, possibly. But the police so readily and so easily just go give that to the RSPCA. And the RSPCA are just a charity with no more powers than you or I to mount private prosecutions. Um, and the Wooler Review found that it wasn't a good use of their resources, that they should put the ball back into the police's court and the council's court to say, you should be prosecuting this. So this case was a joint prosecution between the RSPCA and South Gloucestershire Council. Um, and the case that's been sentenced on, uh, was sentenced yesterday, uh, was um, probably the last big RSPCA prosecution of this kind involving farm animals, because it should be DEFRA and the local authority that prosecutes these kinds of cases. Um, so the follow-up we've got is that the the, uh, the case that's going before the courts this week was for offences between March 2015 and April 2016. And what my investigations have found is that there were, basically what happened was the RSPCA and the authorities cleared out all the dead animals. They took away the animals or put down the animals that needed saving or were too far gone. And the allegation is that Sue Smith basically went out and restocked her farm and then the neglect continued. Now that's an allegation at this stage, but people have provided me with photographs and evidence with pictures that were taken in 2017 and and this year of more similar things with dead sheep in fields and and um, lots of, you know, harrowing scenes from the farmyards. Um, and South Gloucestershire Council told me that, yes, they're going to be prosecuting her for offences that are from 2016 to nearer, you know, to, to much more recently. But the question about why nothing was done before, I think things were, but I think that it's notoriously hard to prosecute these sorts of offences. You can go into a farm can gain access you need you know court orders and stuff to go in there and you can give advice and uh, the threshold for actually saying no this has gone so far I'm not I'm gonna I'm gonna prosecute you now is quite high normally what happens is these sorts of cases where there's a farmer that can't quite cope or something they'll give them advice and they'll give them help and support but I think in this case that there was nothing you know they probably almost certainly should have acted long before they did. So she is about to be sentenced uh, this week, as you've mentioned. That's not going to be the end of it as well, like you've said. Is there anything you want to say, Matt? Well, I just think the whole thing's unbelievable. It's crazy. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the benefit is of of completely neglecting them. I don't, I don't know where the benefit is to the to the farmer. Are they making money off of it? I don't get I don't, it. I, I don't think so. Now, I... I I spoke to, I phoned up Sue Smith and spoke to her on the phone um, one evening this week. And um, she was uh, quite, uh, she was, you know, she was talking to me 
but it was a very strained conversation. And, you know, she's obviously been convicted of quite serious offences. I put to her that there were, since those that investigation, that there have been other, and she's in, in a bit of denial about it. I spoke to lots of other people who've actually met her and dealt with her, including one lady who lent her a goat, lent her a billy goat in 2011. So that thing that happens in the farming community then? Yeah. Lend so, animals. So this lady, so Sue Smith was buying feed off this uh, another farmer, a lady who's got goats, and they were chatting about goats. And the lady said, uh, Sue Smith said, oh, you've got a, a, a male goat. You know, I could do with one of them to impregnate my female goats so that's how it works you know ad hoc arrangement so the lady went yeah okay yeah have her for a week bring her back next week and uh she didn't didn't come back and so the the, the lady was phoning up and phoning up saying you know where you know are you gonna bring my goat back and this lady claims that sue smith said oh no she you know after about a month she said oh no he, he's died he fell into a ditch and he's we can't get him out and he's died so she was obviously very upset about that and was like, I'm going to come and get get the body. And he was like, she was like, oh, no, you can't. He's, he's, we can't get him out. He's, you know. So the, the, the lady with the goat who spoke to me, she said, I kind of was really upset, but I kind of left it and thought that's really weird and sort of notched it down to experience of, you know, that's one um, thing, you know, I can't get it back. And then about six months later, it was still nagging away at her. So she persuaded her partner to go and have a little look at this farm. They're not local. They live far or you know fairly far away so they went and had a look at the, the went walked through the, the the footpath that goes through the farm and came across a barn that was so full of goats <laughs> that they couldn't turn around it was packed right in so yeah she had dozens and dozens of goats there and there were dead ones in there and live ones in there and she was like this is crazy what's going on and sue smith she says sue smith came out of the house and she confronted her and said what you, you know, if I'd have known that this is what the farmer's like, I would never have let my you take my goat. What what have you done? I can see what's you know, and and she says that Sue Smith fell onto the ground. It was hysterical, was wailing and moaning about how she she'd been ill in bed, and this lady was like, clearly she's got you know issues, and she she is not capable of keeping a farm. But she, <laughs> the worst thing is she thinks she is. I think this it's a similar situation. I've come across this many times before where you have, it's the kind of classic thing of like a, a it's that kind of hoarder syndrome thing going on and also somebody who is effectively mentally ill. I don't know what diagnosis Sue Smith has. Imagine if you've got someone who's a bit of a hoarder and they keep 28 cats and they're all living in nasty conditions in this in one house the extent of the neglect and abuse of those animals is own is constrained by the size of their house right but this is a lady in with a similar situation who's got a huge farm blow it up on a massive scale yeah, yeah so it thing. can be you know she has got the capacity the ability to stock you know to get loads of animals in and and she clearly can't look after it. and i said to sue smith i do you think you are capable of looking after farm animals like this. And there was a long pause in our conversation and she said, well, I have been suffering from depression. Um, now, what's most interesting is, and poignant really, 
is that of all the people I've been talking to who have been monitoring this farm, who've been organising to go there together and meet up and tour the farm and try to to have a look and sneak, you know, not sneak around, but to kind of walk the footpath and see what they can see, all of them say they don't blame Sue Smith or don't hate Sue Smith. Their anger is at the authorities for not acting a lot sooner for not stepping in a long time ago when it was clear that she was not capable of keeping a farm to the standards, you know, to the welfare standards that are acceptable to modern society. And they all, they've all met her, I guess. They've all kind of spoken to her and they know that she's got, you know, issues and she can't cope. And they are most angry with, you know, the RSPCA, with the council, with... Um, APHA, the DEFRA uh, department that was supposed to be on top of this. They're supposed to be, there are laws that say that you have to keep farm animals and domestic animals under good conditions and she's failed to do that for whatever reason and it's their job to have sorted this out a long time ago. Not, you know, it's 16 years since she was banned from keeping horses. She's got, she's had horses that lived and died on her farm. She's got hundreds of animals thousands maybe over the years that have lived there under terrible conditions and um you know hopefully hopefully now this week will be the end of it hopefully now something will be done has this just been an operating farm then it's been selling products to is it supermarkets or what does it sell and what's it, who's been selling them to so i've heard although i don't know this for definite that she has uh, she keeps lots of pigs and you know it kind of varies it'll be like whatever whim she's got goats one year it's goats one year it's pigs one year it's sheep whatever but yeah somebody told me about how they contacted a market in Somerset where they knew that Sue Smith was going to sell her pigs to tell them that and this is now a this is now a definite fact because it's part of the charges part of the RSPCA evidence in court last week was that those pigs survived by eating the bodies of other dead animals and so therefore that she phoned this this lady phoned up the market concerned where she knew sue smith had been going to sell the pigs to say do you realize this is what's been happening and the market were like well, it's not our job to check it's the it's the authorities it seems like the system needs a re massive rework if the rspca pca aren't allowed to prosecute uh police clearly don't have like enough resource yeah. there, there needs to be some sort of rework so there's lots of the, one of the problems is that there's lots of different rules and regulations concerning different kinds of animals animals are grouped in categories depending on whether they are um, domestic animals pets farm animals so so like dogs and cats are pets it's classed as pets horses are also sort of classed as pets um, farm animals have a, a lot more regulation so cows sheep uh, goats and pigs and chickens but one of the issues is that when a lot of the problems I used to report on in the years gone by to, in farming was farmers complaining about the amount of regulation they have to go through to have uh, keep animals keep cows and uh, I remember, remember doing the one story about a farmer who she had given birth to a human baby obviously <laughs> on the same day as uh, one of her cows gave birth. And it there was 
a stack of paperwork to register the birth of her calf. And she just had to fill in half a page birth certificate to register the birth of her baby. But she's not going to sell her baby. She's not going to sell her baby and someone, no one else is going to eat that baby or get milk from it or whatever. But, <laughs> but there is supposed to be, and look, and far, you know, the vast, vast majority, 99% of farmers fulfill all those regulations and they jump through hoops that are set up. But the question is, why has it been that where there's somebody who just hasn't done any of that? Some of the charges that were listed against her were failure to register, failure to register births, deaths, get pigs and cows tagged. Every act, every farm animal has to have an ear tag to say, which gives information about where it's born, um, where it lives, etc. One of the problems is that all the different categories of animals, and then you've got all the different categories of authorities. So you've got the South Gloucestershire Council, which has an animal welfare department, which I'd imagine is one of the first places they go to when they make cuts to local authorities. Then you've got the um, Animal and Plant Health Authority, which is part of DEFRA. They're supposed to be in charge of checking the welfare of farm animals as well. And it seems... Now, those authorities, if they were in this room now, would say, we've been working together on this. It seems like there's been a reluctance to uh, work together, maybe leaving it stuff to the RSPCA too much and things have fallen between effectively three stools because you've got the RSPCA there as well and it's been a big challenge um for them but we'll, we'll you know hopefully um by the end of this week by the end of you know by the weekend we'll have a much bigger picture about what's been going on and why these uh these things haven't been prosecuted for so long and when you're when you go out buying your meats and you're out buying your dairy products and things, you assume that these agencies are doing their jobs properly, you know, and they are prosecuting people that that yeah. are committing offences. But it seems like in some cases you could be buying something that potentially hasn't been treated yeah, know, yeah. in the right yeah, way. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially if you go to a supermarket more than a butcher, you go to a supermarket, the, the meat you get from a supermarket, you know, they, they make a big thing about sort of sourcing it and stuff. But then, you know, we had especially processed so like burgers from a packet that have gone, you know, who knows where the meat's come from. Um, I bought a chicken uh, Caesar wrap in Asda the other day and the meat, the chicken had come from Thailand. And you think, oh, there's billions of chickens living in this country. How did it get here as why, well, yeah. <laughs> why has why this chicken come from Thailand? It's, it's madness. And so, you know, the answer is to, if if people are listening and thinking, oh God, the answer is to buy meat from your local butcher because you can say to them, where has this come from? And they will tell you. They buy it themselves from somewhere they know and they'll be able to probably say the farm and give the, you the farmer's phone number. Local butchers are far better um, than supermarkets. The, the, the supply chain, which used to be uh, literally farmer, butcher, shopper, is now got so many different layers on it that it's a global thing. And that's frightening to think about. And at one end, yeah, someone like Sue Smith can sell her pigs at market. Who knows where they went after that? You know, who knows what happened to them then? You know, it's, it, 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 where, where did they end up? I don't know. 
So Tristan, you've got plenty more stories on this coming and you'll be covering the sentencing, which should be available on Bristol Live today, I believe. Yeah, it'll be it'll be definitely on the website today. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Tristan. Tristan is going to keep investigating that situation with the farm, so make sure you follow his work and his articles to keep up to date on that. Right, let's go into our final conversation this week with reporter Alex Wood, who has been tasked with finding all of the reasons that Channel 4 should set up a base in Bristol. My name is Alex Wood, and I'm a news reporter here at Bristol Live. All right, Woody, let's go straight in. Why should Channel 4 come to Bristol? I knew you'd, I knew you'd come at me with a, the, the the big the topical bit, question. Yeah. I'm just the guy that writes the story. Um, <laughs> so why not come to Bristol? I've, that's a poor answer. <laughs> I hope you haven't got a two thousand word that article is the coming. Best that just I can says do. That. Um, I no, I've been really so yeah. Past couple of weeks, I've been spending a lot of time, a lot, a lot of time, uh, speaking to loads of different people from the city, uh, different walks of life, different ages, different careers. And all to do with Channel 4 coming to Bristol, because that is basically what this story is going to be about, what what I'm here to talk about today, Uh, because Channel 4 are looking to move out of London. So they have identified Bristol as being one of seven cities on a list, a short list. Um, And there are, um, you know, Manchester, Leeds, Cardiff, some other big cities that we're up against. But um, but yeah, this feature I've been doing, which comes out today, front page on the paper with lots of people involved in it. So grab a copy. Oh, I don't brag. Or, or visit <laughs> or visit the website. It's on there too. But yeah, lots of different people just trying to canvas opinion from various sectors, not just the media or creative, but from man in the street to people you see on TV and find out what they think. So like you said, we've been shortlisted out you know, we've made a shortlist of seven mm-hmm. cities, which we've got some stiff competition by the looks of it. But I mean, that's been narrowed down from 30, is that right? So there were 30 that were initially yeah, going for the bid. I think, I think that's correct. And we've made it down to seven, which is pretty decent, which is pretty decent. But we also have pretty rich pedigree of TV history anyway, don't we? Yeah. We have what we've had in Deal or No Deal in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably the big one is the Natural History Unit with David yeah. Amber and Blue Planet 2 came out from Bristol, didn't it, as well? Natural, yeah. Has that been something that people have been talking about, our rich TV history? Yeah, it's interesting. Um I mean, we've we obviously have spoken to people in the media bubble as part of the feature because you know you couldn't really not. Um, but we have been trying to make sure that we get you know that man in the street, woman in the street representation, students, you know, people who aren't necessarily in that bubble. Um, and it's interesting that some people don't pick up on Bristol's connections with television industry and just some of the amazing programs that they've. 100% watch but they would never have any idea they've actually been produced and made here in Bristol and that's interesting the media types that I spoke to very much aware of that uh, and very much aware that Channel 4 moving from London to here is a is a huge endorsement for for that sector and it just shows you know what we've got here already like I say a rich pedigree it's um you know it's a big thumbs up that if a, if a national broadcaster like Channel 4 looks at Bristol, looks at the competition, but sees, you know, what's been produced here. And you just name some of the programmes, some of the high profile ones. But it was interesting to see who who actually picks up on that. So who is it that you've been speaking to then? Like you said, you've been trying to get people yes. off the street. So who have you been out chatting to? Yeah, so we, we literally have been out on the street, no exaggeration. And we have spoken to, uh, well, one example, Big Issue Jeff, who we've done, I know, plenty of stuff on before. You know, if you've ever been to Stokes Croft, he's the guy on the side yeah. of the road, shouting, friendly as anything, he, saying hello to everyone. No understatement. You know, I think legend gets branded about a lot, especially in local medium and whatnot. Real, but he's a real character and... For this, it was the first time I met him. I've read about him before and his just feel-good vibes and making everyone happy. But only when I went down there to visit him did I really actually get an impression of 
you know, this guy gives like hugs out every 30 seconds and that's if you're buying a copy of it or you're not. Uh, he was brilliant. So, yeah, I mean, he's an example. We had a chat with him and, you know, he's a very busy man. He was trying to sell copies of his big issue and give lots of hugs. But he did have one message for, for Channel 4, which we managed to get. So play it. See what happens. Channel 4, Bristol is a place to be. You don't want to be no place but Bristol. Yes, sir, it's June. Everybody's great. Everybody's lovely. See, everybody pulled together. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of... That's the kind of positive message that people are bringing. There. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously, you know, Jeff's um, uh, take on it, which, which is brilliant. And just at the end of that video, as he sort of drifted off on the audio, he then hugs two people as they walk past uh, who, I don't know if they had any idea they were going to get hugged, but they, they looked like they enjoyed it. So it, great to have someone like that on board, you know, someone that people recognise as a character. Been here for, I think, 15 years. Uh, previously, Birmingham, he said, and then before that, London. So he himself, you know, he's travelled around and... To have stayed here for 15 years, I mean, that I think in itself shows, you know, what Bristol offers, not just to a big broadcaster, but to any person that wants to live here. Who else is on your list of people to get right. opinions of then? Yes. So this list is quite comprehensive. I'll run through it. Uh, I'll give you a couple of names that you probably will know and probably some you don't. But um, so we've we've got people, like I say, from Big Issue Jeff, Man in the Street, right up to Carol Vorderman, who is very much a Channel 4 household name. She very kindly uh, got involved in the project when she heard that we were doing this. I know her links to Channel 4, like I say, are obvious. She was, believe it or not, the first woman to appear on Channel 4 We're on Countdown, which was she was on for, I can't remember how many years off the top of my head, but it was a very, very long time. And, you know, she's very much, uh, she moved to Bristol, actually. Um, she's not from here originally, but she moved here and now lives in Clifton. Uh, and she said, you know, for the reasons that other parents would with children, the education that's on offer here, um, as well as, you know, if you're lucky to live in a place like Clifton anyway. But, you know, that space is a very unique part of Bristol. So, yeah, Carol Vorderman's on board. Uh, other names you might know, uh, Gogglebox cast, or the Bristol-based uh, members of That'll Gogglebox. That'll be an exciting one for quite a few people, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, even if you don't like to openly admit you watch Gogglebox, it's the it's a great programme, like, if you haven't watched it. Uh, proper guilty pleasure. But we've got Mary and Marina, the two sort of elderly couple, friends, I should say, two women, and they're hilarious. And the three T's, as they've become known, three brothers, uh, Twain, Tremaine and Tristan, plumber. They're both on board and they've both given quite an, uh, an interesting uh, answers to the questions. So there's probably the better ones that you'll know. But others, we've got Marvin Reese, the mayor. We've got uh, people from Bottle Yard Studios. We've got Steve England, who is everyone's favourite conservationist. We've got a couple of people from The Watershed, creative director from there. Uh, so kind of just a mix of people. What are the benefits of Channel 4 coming here? Well, uh, that's a good question. Channel 4 coming here, somewhere along the line, it's going to boost, uh, you know, think about financially and think about employment. A big broadcaster like that coming down to Bristol, um, it may not be immediate and they're going to be bringing their own staff, but somewhere along the line, they're going to need to recruit locally. They're going to need you know, local expertise in making that move. So there would be jobs. There would be a jobs boost. And obviously, you know, when they come to set up local offices, they will be looking to recruit local talent, which UE is doing great work with its journalism course or courses. Um, and obviously Bristol University is a well-respected university. And I think, you know, whilst Bristol is better than other cities at retaining students and graduates, I think having a Channel 4 or a national broadcaster like that in addition to what we already have, BBC, ITV, you know, for any budding, aspiring student who, a journalist who wants to go into a career in the media, 
you know, having something like Channel 4 on your doorstep is another reason to want to stay in this, you know, what is an amazing city. I think the inclusive nature of Channel 4 and the way that it's, one of its missions has always been to be a TV sh- a TV channel for everyone mm. is also one of the things that I think people are seeing as a benefit because they, they could come here and they could offer jobs to a wider range of people than we might usually expect to see. Is that something that has been mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Desmond Brown, who has cropped up a name that you might be familiar with some stories we've done in the past, but he is a really inspiring sort of community figure. He's the founder of Growing Futures, which is a charitable organisation, and they work with sort of disadvantaged children. He originally uh, lived in London, moved down to here uh, to be closer to his family, and he made that exact point. And if, let me get this right. It was not what Channel 4 can do for Bristol, but it's what Bristol can do for Channel 4. And that's the kind of that, that kind of my eyes that, you know, Bristol has... This, you know, it's celebrated diversity, you know, multicultural. Uh, God knows how many how many languages are spoken here and celebrated here. And he, you know, he made that point quite clear that, you know, Channel 4 and Bristol almost go hand in hand with that sense of, you know, celebrating diversity and just, you know, the incredible range in skills and people that we have on offer. That was something, he, you know, he was the first one I was talking, you know, he was, he was one of the first people I interviewed to make that point. But it, it was definitely a reoccurring theme that, um, you know, everything that Channel 4 is known for, or the best things it's known for, that applies to Bristol. So what's the next step for Channel 4 and for Bristol then in trying, in terms of trying to get these new headquarters? Yeah, uh, well, that's a good, that's, that's a good question because my feature only goes so far into in terms of um, selling us as a city. It's a long process. Well, it's at least going to be a couple more months. I think it's October is the next date, I think that's right, when Channel 4 will be narrowing that shortlist down. So, yeah, they're here today, senior figures from Channel 4. Uh, they're in Bristol and they're meeting with, you know, some of our senior figures, shall we say. And I imagine they'll be, you know, possibly taking a tour of the city, uh, seeing the city for what it is and having a meeting just about, you know, what it is that we offer that other cities don't. So the point, the purpose of these articles, of this article that you're writing then, is to show Channel 4 the sort of the benefits of coming to Bristol, but then is it also to show Bristol what the benefits of it coming yeah, to Bristol? Yeah, it's, it's a two-handed... Two I mean, like I said, the priority is that we like to think is, is Channel 4 will see this article as, um, you know, a showcasing of what we offer as a newspaper and the amazing people that we actually are writing about. Uh, not because we're going to any extreme lengths to find those people, but just because the city is filled with them. And, you know, our stories reflect that, hopefully. So, yeah, we hope we can showcase Bristol to them but vice versa, you know, our readers will hopefully see it. Too. Of course, you know, if they buy the copy or visit the website Bristol Live, then they'll see the story. And what was really nice about taking this on is the fact that this is purely a positive. Well, it is a positive piece. Of course, Bristol's not perfect. No, no city is, and, and you know, we report on and everything that goes on this city. I like to think, but this was an opportunity to showcase its its best features. And, you know, with, with very much Channel 4 seeing it in mind, but if readers can, if, if they're looking for something today to read where they can think, you know what, actually, I live in a city like this and this person's doing this and, oh, I didn't know such and such lived here and, oh, look, there's someone from Gogglebox, let's see what they've got to say. And that, I think, is, is, is quite refreshing as a journalist to have the freedom to just do something positive about the city that you live and work in. Let me bring in producer Matt here. Well, I wonder for a lot of people that are listening, when we're saying Channel 4 are moving from London to here, or mm. potentially, what does that entail? Is that their entire media organisation or is it their headquarters or is it, it their, what, what is it? Is it, it going to be? Yeah, it wouldn't be everything. 
uh, my understanding is it would be a sort of a regional HQ. So there would still be a London presence for them, as there is with the BBC. But in my head, at least, it's similar to the way that the BBC have moved to Manchester or certainly moved some of their, their outlet to Manchester and created Media City. So with Channel 4, what they're looking to do with this shortlist is identify one city where they'll have a regional HQ or hub where I think is is you know we're talking hundreds of staff will be relocated from London and recruited from Bristol whatever city they choose but say it's Bristol they'll come to Bristol and then there'll be two satellite offices slightly smaller which will go to two of the other cities on the shortlist so Bristol's bidding for that regional HQ that we want to be we want to be home to that hub but as well as the hub there's going to be these two slightly smaller regional satellite offices to supplement the hub that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> so we are in with a chance of being either the main regional HQ or we could be one of the satellite offices as well then. So it's not yeah. a sort of all or nothing bid then. No, I mean, I, I think Marvin Reese was it was said recently, we're in it to win it, which is a great approach, great mentality to have. And I think reading between the lines, that is us saying we want to have the regional HQ. We want to have that hub. That, that is the biggest uh, sort of option on the table. But um, but no, I mean, it'd be nice to think that if we missed out on the regional HQ, it would still be a big endorsement for the city if we were to secure a satellite office. You know, that in itself is is Channel 4 moving out of London and coming here, should they choose here. So let's hope that Channel 4, while they're in the city, are listening to this podcast and they will get all of the perks of Bristol. <laughs> so we could have them on if they come here, perhaps. <laughs> what's your, what's your favourite Channel 4 TV oh. show? Oh, I'm going to be really, I've already talked about it. I'm going to be really dull and say, Gogglebox has got to be up there in terms of just an easy watch. Like, I love Hollyoaks. I'm a big Hollyoaks fan. Never yeah. seen oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never Hollyoaks. seen it. I've never watched an episode of Hollyoaks. I used to watch it religiously when I was like 15 or something. I, I kept it to myself. but <laughs> <laughs> Until now. <laughs> Until now, yeah. Now everybody knows. My little brother watches it, so it's always on at my parents' house. Uh, so whenever I'm sort of on my way through, I'm like... What's well, he doing now? Don't recognize <laughs> there, is, there is a lot of drama going on. Yeah, it's young people's drama as well. It's good drama. Good drama. Good drama. It's not like old people sat in a pub drama. <laughs> this, is, this is you bigging up Hollyoaks. It's time. me bigging Basically. up. Basically. It's me publicly endorsing Hollyoaks. Wow. <laughs> well, look, you know, it's Channel 4 and if they come here, it'll be a lot closer to home. Maybe we could have our own soap. Hey, There's not skins. Exactly. I was going to say skins was filmed here, you know, yeah. not that long ago. Okay. So We've had a lot going on. We, yeah, and that yeah. is exactly what Poldark as well. I'm pretty is sure. I mean, not love. Channel Four, but I'm pretty it's BBC, sure, isn't it, John Poldark? But it's here. Uh, is what yeah, I'm saying. Sorry, okay. yeah, yeah. Not. Whew. I was going to say, I think Garden Force. <laughs> Alan, Alan Titchmarsh has just done some Bristol based. This is a debut mention for Garden Force on a podcast. I'm pretty yeah. sure <laughs> he used to have his own show. Yeah, like a chat show. Thing. Yeah, he did, was, didn't he? Yeah, it wasn't very good. Paula Grady for life. <laughs> <laughs> it's Channel Four. Paula Grady is Paula Grady Channel Four. I don't know. I, don't I feel know. like he's ITV, but I think he's yeah. I think he's ITV now. Maybe, I feel like we've we've heavily we've detracted str- from, str- from str- what we've come here to talk yeah. about. Right. So bring Paula Grady to Bristol. No, <laughs> uh, yes. no Channel Four. Channel Four, Channel Channel four, four to, to Bristol. Bristol. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. This story, like I say, uh, it's a long piece. It's a long read, but it's just everything that's great. And everyone that's great that I like to think is, you know, that's contributed. And there were many more because we're limited by page space. And, you know, ultimately our article can only, you can only scroll so far on your mobile phone before you um, move on to other things. But I just, and that's another thing. If anyone's listening that's contributed or, or did and hasn't maybe made the paper version, but it's online, just a big thank you 
because I was worried that with a brief of trying to get 10 minimum people, that that was going to be a real struggle. And actually everyone I spoke to has, you know, unless they've been completely unavailable, just want to give up their time and they wanted to get involved. So I think that's, you know, in itself, that's, you know, thank you to them. It's a big relief that you've managed to get it all together within your deadline. That's more of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely relieved that two days before I have more than 10 people. That is, that's the truth. But um, yeah. Alex, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Really interesting to hear from Alex Wood about all the reasons why Channel 4 should come to Bristol. That brings this week's show to an end. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Matt for his interjections. Very Thanks helpful. for me. As always. No, you're welcome back on next week if you want. I'll probably be here, mate, because I've got to do this. Yeah, I'll do the hard work. You can just sort of ask easy questions. Oh, you're, t- you're too kind. <laughs> Matt does all of the hard work, by the way. Nah. I just sit here. I'm just a talent. Anyway, let's bring this <laughs> Let's bring this week's show to an end. Uh, I've been Alex Ballinger, your host. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. And until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.